I wonder if I might hunt for sherds in your garden. Sherds? Well, I have an archaeological interest. I'm a student of that in my own time. Old things generally. You're listening to Sherd's Podcast, a journey through the outskirts of literature. An old peasant lay dying. His bed stood in the upstairs room in the sour-smelling air. Dusk was falling, and the peasant lay peering out from the depths of his straw mattress, under the blanket that was grubby and grey. His dark bony fingers caught at the blanket, and he noticed it for a second and thought, See, I'm already tying up my bundle. But he peered with the flat glazed sheen of his eyes above the taut yellow skin of his cheekbones, and nothing moved across his forehead or around his black sunken mouth. He saw the tall bed, and behind it his yellow chest with the Virgin Mary and the bowls on it. The walls were stained blue with salt, and the red floor tiles were damp at the corners. He had long been without a wife, and his children had all left home. Now an old woman came in occasionally. He thought of her when he looked at the chest and then at the chair. The chair's not straight, he thought. He saw that the evening light lay in ridges across the rush seat of the chair. Then he felt a little cold around his shoulder. Where had the woman got to? He did not make any effort to get deeper under the blanket. He knew he was on his deathbed. That was the opening paragraph of Karel van der Wolsteiner's novella, The Dying Peasant, which was originally published in Dutch in 1918. It is now available for the first time in an unabridged translation by Paul Vincent, published by Snuggly Books. The book concerns an elderly farmer, Nand, who lies on his deathbed and is visited by five figures, each representing one of the five senses. As the fragmentary reflections occasioned by these sensory avatars tell the rich story of Nan's life, van der Wolsteiner evokes a deep reverence for the surface of things and the simplicity and beauty of ordinary life. Join us over the next hour while we share our thoughts and impressions about this classic of Flemish literature. We hope you enjoy our conversation. So welcome to episode 13 of Shared's podcast. My name's Sam Pullum. I'm here with Rob Prowse. How are you doing, Rob? Yeah, good. Thanks, Sam. I don't know if you saw my post, but uh, we're placed in the charts. Oh, yeah. You saw <laughs> How do you feel about our position in the charts, Rob? That's just great. I mean, I think the fact that we're on any chart is just fantastic, you know, and it gives us something to aim for. <laughs> <laughs> so just to clarify to listeners, we are currently the... 272nd most popular <laughs> podcast about literature among p- 
Polish listeners. So pretty spectacular, if you ask me. <laughs> yeah, totally. But that's got to be good because I mean, it's a podcast in English. So, or do we not even feature? Do we not even feature on an English list? <laughs> <laughs> I don't think we do. <laughs> I don't think we do, but most of them are most of them are in English anyway. Like there are a few Polish literary podcasts that I know, but yeah, a lot of competition, Rob. I thought I'd found the the reason, but obviously not. <laughs> so we're talking about a book called The Dying Peasant by Karl van der Wolsteiner, originally published in 1918, and now published in a very handsome little edition by Snuggly Books. It's a gorgeous book, no, Rob? It's really, really beautiful, yeah. When you when you sent me the photo, I thought, oh, that was very nice. But actually, yeah, getting it through the post, and I've got it here in my hand now, obviously. It's, yes, really, really lovely book. Very slim, but this full page. Reproduction of the of the painting on the cover is, is yeah, just stunningly beautiful. Yeah, it's, uh, it's painted by his brother, Gustav mm. van der Wolsteiner. So this is quite a special one for me, Rob. As you know, I had a very small hand in its journey to publication. And I'm not even sure the publishers know this, but uh, they'll find <laughs> out now. <laughs> so about eight or nine years ago, something like nine years ago, when I was first at university at Queen Mary, I used to write a literary blog under the rather pretentious title of The Black Milk of Daybreak. <laughs> <laughs> I might have deleted that, I think, but I used to write about a lot of things I've been reading and not really for anyone else, but really just as, you know, as a way of synthesizing or absorb, absorbing the book somehow so, uh, for myself yeah anyway i used to sort of roam the dark corners of my university library in search of books to write about and i kind of miss i miss that massively i don't know if you have the same thing but i used to go to my university library and every week i'd take out like eight different books and that was like the maximum you could take out and i'd, I'd just go to all the different sections so i'd come out with i don't know a 19th century study of entomology and a book on cosmology or you know some old Icelandic primer or something like that I had this sort of disposition at that time at least that whatever book I was supposed to be reading for class that was the, the one I wanted to lead that was the one I wanted to read last so I'd just take out loads of other stuff I don't know did you, did you used to do that Rob? I guess when I was at art school was at art college I can, yeah they didn't have the same library experience oh, of course and yeah. then yeah and then later when I was doing my masters the the reading was so tough that it just took me all my time doing it and, and trying to piece it together and reading some secondary literature that I suppose I did I did read bits and pieces and yeah I certainly had that experience of going to the library and seeing all this other stuff but I didn't quite um do that so you were you were a good student in other words <laughs> well or a, or a stupid student I just didn't spend all my time reading <laughs> reading the one thing but anyway so one day I was in the Dutch literature section there which admittedly was very very small it was something like 20 books maximum and I came across this tiny little volume almost a chapbook and it was illustrated with really beautiful woodcuts and it had the title quite confusingly for me now of it was it was called the peasant dying or the peasant comma dying uh, so every time I mention this book, The Dying Peasant, I, I my first urge is to think of it the other way around. <laughs> yeah, I took it home and just found it absolutely fascinating. I'd never heard of this writer, Karl von der Wolsteiner, and I couldn't really find much information about him online at the time in English, and certainly very few references to, to this book. I read it, 
And even though the English was perhaps slightly stilted, something of the book's power came through and I ended up writing a blog post about it. And then some months later, I was contacted by this professor of Germanic philology at the University of Ghent. And he was actually the translator of the book. Uh, his name was Walter Theis. And I think he actually translated that book with some students um, when he was at the University of Indiana. And in case, in, in his email to me, he told me it was one of his dying wishes to see this book published in full. The book that I'd found had was slightly abridged. But yeah, he actually put it in those terms, his, his dying wish. And he asked me if I could recommend any publishers. And I sent a few over, I think at the time it was Daedalus Press and Archipelago Books and maybe Pushkin Press as well. And he tried but none of them was interested, unfortunately, at all. We sort of left it at that. And apart from one email at Christmas one time, I don't think I ever heard from him again. Sometime last year, I looked him up again and, and was saddened to see that he'd passed away in 2015. And it got me thinking about this book again, trying to see if there had been a more recent translation made. I managed to track down a German version that was published in a journal, uh, that was only active in the 30s called Corona but there was still no English version available and, and so on a whim I just wrote to this uh, I wrote to the Flemish Literature Fund to a guy called uh, Michael Scharper um, forgive me if I'm pronouncing that incorrectly, and asked about any information he had on a possible English publication of that. We had a brief back and forth, and then it quite quickly transpired that, that nothing existed, and I ended up recommending Snuggly Books, which is one of my favourite small presses at the moment. I think they publish some, some wonderful books, a lot of old European decadent literature and some books by some of my favorite contemporary writers like Quentin S. Crisp and Justin Isis and uh, thankfully they were interested and responded immediately and I think it was published within the year of that so the Flanders Literature Fund provided a grant and it, it came out very quickly after that and I was so pleased to finally hold this book in my hands and have the full English um, translation and it's been just an absolute pleasure to, to read it so you know even though I had a very small hand in it I'm, I'm really proud that it eventually came out Oh it doesn't it doesn't sound so small I think I think you're not doing yourself justice that's, uh, that's amazing I mean I'm obviously hearing the full story for the first time but it's a, yeah amazing amazing story and yet for it to have happened so quickly is the sort of thing just doesn't happen it seems so yeah it's, it's amazing i mean i kind of wish i wish that uh, walter tais had been around to see it because um he was quite passionate about this coming out even so i'm so so pleased it did but anyway after that long ramble rob uh, how, <laughs> did, <laughs> how did you feel about reading this this book oh yeah it was absolutely amazing yeah i mean it is obviously it's quite small and i i as soon as i started reading it i realized that i was going to finish it that evening that you know there was there was no way i was going to put it down it was just yeah absolutely amazing and it's one of the few books that i've been moved to read out loud from I, it's not something i really like doing that much i must admit but um mm. i just found certain sections of it so powerful that i wanted to read it to people it's uh it's a just a really beautiful small book yeah i'm so i'm so happy that you kind of recommended it and that we've had the chance to read it and really kind of give it a close reading for 
for the podcast so yeah really thoroughly enjoyed it obviously i i was sort of already disposed to enjoy it i, I mean I've, I've read it in an in another language and uh read the, that original abridged translation before but um this was a different experience i, f- I feel much more immersive to to read it in my native language and it's just a fascinating little text i think well extremely highly regarded in belgium i think i think he's regarded as a a major poet but but not really well known outside of his native region yeah interestingly in this book there's there's little plot to speak of we essentially follow the thoughts of this farmer nand as he lies on his deathbed and you know fleeting trains of thought are followed and they quickly dissipate as others interrupt them you really get the sense of a mind's grip on the world sort of gradually loosening you know the the ties between mind and world becoming frayed and delicate and then dissolving entirely it's really moving experience i think to read this and for me it really captured I think something that I've certainly experienced and I imagine might be a kind of universal thing of if you've ever been ill and bedridden this point where a kind of you're not so lucid mind constrained to such a small space for long periods of time the space itself begins to enlarge and you and you notice detail and um, yeah you have this kind of macroscopic view of everything captured it so perfectly for me these um the opening section of the book as he kind of notices the furniture and his clothes and makes conjecture about what the tiniest of sounds might be i could really empathize with that i felt like i'd been there maybe as a as a young child often off school <laughs> sick. yeah, <laughs> yeah. That's that's really interesting that you mentioned that because it's um, it's sort of at this stage, as I said, where the grip on reality might be uh, might be loosening slightly, but it also leads to a sort of hypersensitivity, doesn't it? So while it begins in this in this small upstairs room in this deathbed, it, it quite quickly expands way beyond that, both spatially and temporally, doesn't it? Mm. From personal experience, I wouldn't say. <laughs> <laughs> I wouldn't say personally it's something that I've experienced. Maybe I've not been ill enough, Rob. Oh, but I mean, I've, I've certainly not been uh, visited by uh, young women representing my senses. But, um, <laughs> but these, you know, like if you're if you've ever been a kid and sort of made up patterns in in the kind of like wallpaper or i guess it is kind of through boredom that you perhaps are Mm. lying there something on the ceiling starts to look like a face or um it felt to me like these kind of just cheerily through your mind grasping and attempting to find something interesting to look Mm, at mm. you you notice and pick out every tiny detail of um, of a room or uh, perhaps it is just me maybe (laughs) (laughs) no that makes that makes more sense to me i have to say (laughs) and Interestingly, the way we've described it just in terms of what it's about, you could imagine that that would be quite a bleak book to read, but that couldn't be further from the truth, I think. There's so much warmth in here. So I'll, I'll say a little bit about Van der Wolsteiner's life. Actually, there's not that much available in English. There's quite a lot available in, in Dutch, but unfortunately I don't read that language. But I managed to gather a little bit of information. So he's born in Ghent in 1878, studies Germanic philology at the, the University of Ghent. And while he's there, he reads a lot of symbolist French poetry. And I think that's a definite 
influence on the dying peasant that I, I think we might touch on a bit later. But yeah, from the beginning of the 20th century, he publishes quite prolifically, um, mostly poetry, actually. That, I think that's mentioned also in the introduction by the translator, Paul Vincent. Yeah, the vast majority of his output is poetry, but I think this is the text that he is now best known for. He also publishes a little bit of prose fiction and some literary criticism as well. Paul Vincent also makes reference in his introduction to the fact that it was a conscious decision to write in his native Dutch uh, rather than French, as many of his contemporaries did, such as Maeterlinck. Do you think, Rob, perhaps that could have contributed to his relative obscurity? I'm sure it must. I mean, the very story that you've told earlier, you know, it does seem like there was a certain thing to fell into place to get it translated and published but had it been in french yeah i think i think definitely it would have been much better known dutch is i suppose a very much a minority language is not spoken very widely and probably learned as a second language by far fewer people than learn french right so it's sort of uh, cultural accessibility is is diminished necessarily i suppose yeah absolutely and it's just far harder to even though yeah absolutely this this book seems to fit in or you know in some way have a relationship with the kind of French symbolism it can't be counted as part of that movement and so I guess whereas certain things will be known purely by their proximity to something in terms of you know being published at the same time in the same city with the same concerns this only loosely is one of those books and so yeah it's easier to see how it how it could have fallen by the way a little and it's actually made me quite interested to find out a bit more about what was going on in in the Netherlands and uh, in Belgium in this period in terms of literature because, yeah, symbolism in Dutch is not something I've had much contact with. I suppose the closest thing in terms of just geographical proximity and and the period is probably Louis Couperus, on whom I think we should eventually do an episode, Rob. Uh, I read a wonderful book by him called Footsteps of Fate, but stylistically it's something very, very different, much closer to to realism somehow than than this book but yeah it it does make me want to explore this this period in dutch literature as a bit more but i was going to say i mean do you think because of the nature of the books that we're choosing to read for this podcast some more than others but um there's obviously a very much a focus on things that have fallen for whatever reason outside mainstream and we quite often ask each other this question of like why do you think this has happened why is it's not better known especially for the things that have really grabbed us and often it seems like it can be the most you know something quite arbitrary that yeah it can be about language for sure but we've read so much in translation and perhaps you know something like translation from greek is is, i don't know is, is far harder or far less people doing it but then perhaps it's just there's just not the right translator at the right time, or mm. you know, there's uh, you know certain at the point at which it's published, the, there's not the English language interest in it, and then all sorts of yeah, I don't know. It's quite it's very difficult to unpick. Sometimes I guess it could come down to something almost unknowable that someone forgot or someone uh, you know just these these funny chance things. I mean, um, it's what makes your kind of as you say small involvement so wonderful because perhaps all it needs is 
just one person writing an email to be this sudden catalyst that someone says, oh, yeah, okay, great, we'll do it. <laughs> like there is no, perhaps there is no reason it just needs a, a tiny kickstart. Yeah, 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 I suppose it's a case in point really, isn't it? But I, I guess, um, like you said, you know, if if there are certain associations with, with other writers, uh, sometimes that could be enough to draw, you know, scholarly or popular attention to particular figures. And maybe this period of Dutch literature is not broadly culturally prominent uh, enough to inspire that kind of exploration. So anyway, he uh, he became a, a journalist and wrote regular columns on art and and on social and political affairs, which I thought was quite interesting, and we might discuss it in a bit more detail later, because to me, at least, well, ostensibly, there's an absence of any reference to political events in this text, despite the publication date of 1918. You know, obviously, this country has just been through uh, quite a catastrophic war, and I think that's perhaps quite interesting in terms of what van der Wolsteiner regarded as the the role of art, perhaps. But um, we can return to that. And he later teaches Dutch literary history at the University of Ghent when he gains a professorship there, and dies in 1929. And as I said before, is is now remembered primarily for for this text that we're looking at today. Uh, I don't know if you came across this, Rob, but it was also adapted into a play for Voices. I didn't realise that. Yeah, so there's a wonderfully atmospheric uh, radio play made, I, th- I, I would guess, in the 80s, but it's difficult to tell because I couldn't find much information about it. But there's a clip of it on YouTube, and I'll include a little section of it here. I can imagine that working really, really well. Yeah, and the reader of it it has this wonderful deep voice obviously it's in dutch but dutch is kind of close enough to english and german that i can work out a fair amount of it but it mirrors the opening section of this so maybe i'll play the opening section an oude boer lag te sterven. Op de voutkamer in de zure lucht stond zijn bed. De dag ging al naar de avond en de boer lag uit de diepte van zijn kafzak onder de sarge die grauw en groezelig was te kijken. In de sergie haakten zijn donkere vingeren. Hij had al lang geen vrouw meer en zijn kinderen waren alle weg. Nu kwam er van tijd een oud wijf. Waar bleef dat wijf nu? After this initial section that we're kind of sitting with this uh, or lying with this peasant as he's kind of thinking about his fate slowly passing away and the, the time's going. And at this point in the book, I think you have very little idea of really what's what's about to come. And he imagines this woman who I assume we're, he's caring for him is about to come and is complaining about the fate of his life. And so he thinks to himself, I'll never get what I want. It's this kind of very sombre lament as he's passing away. He's then visited by the first of um, these women or 
The first one, I think, is described as a girl, each of whom represent one of his senses. And then you're transported into this incredibly rich description of, of the kind of memories that he, his entire life, built up purely through senses. And the first one is his eyes. And it's um, an incredible description of this, this farmer who works very hard and focuses quite a lot on his Sundays and how using vision he kind of reads the landscape and um, has this incredibly deep relationship with the with the land and it's quite <laughs> I knew this was going to happen when I was making notes it's so hard to talk about I think because really I just want to read it mm. um, because it's very hard to do it justice because it is written so beautifully that I think really you just need to read it the whole thing is a sort of feast for the the senses isn't it it's sort of a a way of trying to replicate in prose mostly the delights of the senses that you know they have very different character i suppose but they're all framed in in very positive terms in every sense there's a sort of wonderful evocation of of nature and ordinary things i like that there's this sense of luxuriating in the surface of things like a sort of Mm. deep reverence for the ordinary in that first the first section about sight we have this very vivid description of the fields on on Nan's farm and how the seasons turn and the colours in the fields shift and the yellow of the rapeseed and dandelion in certain seasons is contrasted with the burnt black of the frozen potato tops and the green of the clover. I don't know about you, but I just found that Van der Wolsteiner was revelling in those details. Like, it's a pure indulgence of describing the physical world is you know the colors and shapes i thought that was well firstly very very beautiful obviously but curious because um you know every physical description that we get or sensory description perhaps i should say sort of occasions something beyond itself in very subjective terms for for Nand, doesn't it for example the uh, the sense of smell occasions the the tale of of nand having this sort of illicit fling with a young village girl the sense of smell is really closely associated with with sexual desire i just found that each of the senses transported nand to a different period in his life or to a different different place or these stories seem to come specifically out of each each sense which i thought was really interesting certain small sights or sounds smells taste feelings will then lead on to the entire story that preceded them or that is somehow intertwined that takes you away from from that particular sense only to then bring you back with the you know sometimes very arbitrarily where it suddenly moves and then sometimes slides into you know especially with the family stuff the way family members grow old and move away and um, yeah so it's really amazingly kind of woven together and also very funny i think there's something very irreverent in a really beautiful way about this for me the the funniest bit is um, the way it sort of seems to start and talks about him being this quite poor very good farmer who doesn't drink so much <laughs> and as the as each sense comes in they each start talking more and more about and it's always tied in you know so the the site deals with i think his journeys you know the the, the cities he's seen and maybe he'll uh, you know going to market and be selling a cow and the, on the way back he might stop for a beer yeah and this 
becomes more and more, and he realised that actually perhaps by the end of it he did quite like a drink. Yeah. Um, <laughs> and there's this really, yeah, you know, it's obviously very much tied in with things. You, you didn't. He, he believed himself to have not got what he truly wanted, and then remembering these quite simple pleasures. I mean, I don't think that anything here is um, necessarily in itself something that we would say, "Oh, this is the absolute luxury." But mm. actually, on paper here, it's written in the most beautiful prose. That yeah, I think your your use of the word luxuriating is is absolutely spot on. Yeah, it somehow disproves what he's uh, saying initially, doesn't it? That actually, although he might not have had a particularly rich life in conventional senses, it's actually been filled with so much beauty. The richness of his life has been almost bodily, almost just the concrete existence of the world has been rich is enough for him. Yeah, and I think this is what I was thinking about when I was imagining this kind of like this almost literal reading of the of the landscape, the way that in, in purely just looking at his land, he gets so much and he can read so much and he can, you know, seemingly know what will happen. And, you know, even even the kind of rain clouds for him provide this um, joy because he knows that how that will affect the crops and how important that is in times of drought, it says. But the escapism that perhaps we are literally getting from reading it, it's kind of almost, he's getting that very real, I don't know, this kind of escape from the everyday by becoming so immersed in it. Now, whether this is you know overly romantic or whether it's possible, I don't know. Do you think it presents a rather a sort of Arcadian picture of rural, rural life? Is it sort of irresponsibly romantic? The contextual side of things, which you brought up earlier, and, and really I almost feel a bit silly for not realising until you mentioned it in our first conversation about this about the book. It seems so, so important for understanding what's going on here, that in the face of birth of kind of mechanised warfare and the, the most horrific excesses of um, the kind of birth pangs of modernity like the things that happen at this this complete shift into the modern world that it feels perhaps quite understandable <laughs> you might try and take this pure aesthetic pleasure in a romantic idea of a, of a pre-modern existence there is something so joyous about it that i i also feel quite miserly somehow to to deny it that i don't know when it talks about the men walking to work in the dark to do the threshing or the um, you know whatever it is they're doing the the wheat harvest and singing out and ribbing their mates for not being up already and these are things you can imagine and i don't know yeah obviously working all days in the field must be really tough but at the same time there's um, you know in memory as this is i can imagine that being genuinely quite a joyous memory on the, on the one hand if you think of this as being sort of representative of something like aestheticism you know where socio-political realities are are regarded as not really art's domain or that beauty is far more important consideration than any kind of concession to current world events then fair enough you know and and that's going on a lot earlier than than this book but it just strikes me that when i looked into the historical context of the book a little bit and and found out that actually during the first world war the conflict took a huge toll on belgium in terms of food supplies and you know there was even an emergency law put in place which prohibited the export of food and there was this sort of rapid surge to set up allotments in cities uh, and there were kitchen gardens in rural areas and the, the country was genuinely teetering on the brink of famine at the time of this book's publication and some 
scholars use that that word unequivocally and refer to it as as famine yeah this this is the height of it and so to construct a literary text at that moment when absolutely uh van der Wolsteiner would have been aware of the situation being a, a journalist it does beg some interesting questions mm, yeah absolutely does that have a sort of political meaning is it purely an attempt to return to a simpler perhaps more utopian vision of rural life and if it is then why is the depiction of rural life here less than arcadian let's say it's fairly sort of warts and all Mm. you know it's sort of equally attentive to you know the flowers that grow on the feet grow in his fields as it is to the the dung heaps that fertilize them you know (laughs) yeah um so if it has that level of reality it just begs the interesting question for me is why it doesn't make reference to the political and social realities of of the period not that i think it should you know yeah it's not well that's not my approach generally but i think it's really really important and i think for us looking at the book it's kind of impossible to ignore right that there is this going on and you feel that in the in the face of this it would be impossible for it not to seep in even unconsciously into into why this very book appears at the time it does It is mainly your land that you saw on Sundays. It lay round and high, but that is good for drainage. In the early spring you can still see the earth between the sprouts of grain, but in May the limp ear forms, and you are content. The rapeseed blooms and is so yellow it hurts your eyes, and at night the fruit trees are even whiter than during the day with all their blossoms. But it's sad when you see the tops of the potatoes burnt black from the frost at that time. But it is still early in the season, and they can still put out new shoots. When the summer comes, it is something else again that you see. On Sunday mornings, you go walking among your patches of grain. You see that the rye is yellow as a dandelion, but the wheat, a little later, is as red as beer. The green of the clover is very green, but its fat bunches are already beautiful as roses. The potatoes are also in flower, white or like the mallows that grow in wet corners. At that time you see the water too, because it is flat and shiny, because it is the time when nothing can hide from the sun. It is the time of the sunflowers by the dung heap, and by the back door the dahlias as big as children's heads. When autumn comes, you dig up the potatoes on Sunday after Vespers. The cowherds come in their first communion clothes and make fires of the tops for roasting spuds in. The smoke lies in long wisps across the land. Do you, do you think there is like a larger message to be drawn from the book or I almost don't want there to be personally because as as a book in itself it's it's so beautiful and I think that's why I just hadn't clocked any of the contextual stuff because as a thing outside of time perhaps it's um it's really beautiful as to whether it has a, a sort of broader message i think that's a really tricky question and one that that is sort of tied for me to symbolism and to religion perhaps because you know in every short biography that you can find in english of van der Wolsteiner, french symbolism and the influence of it on his work is mentioned. And I think maybe you can certainly hear echoes in his prose of, of something like Baudelaire's poem, Correspondences, in which nature is referred to as a, a temple where living columns sometimes breathe confusing speech 
and he also speaks of walking in a in a forest of symbols and that i think if we're considering the novel as something distinctly or explicitly symbolist we have to imagine what kind of work those detailed descriptions of nature and the objects of the phenomenal world are doing exactly i found it interesting i was looking at the symbolist manifesto i don't know if you've ever read that rob the Jean Maurias um, Symbolist Manifesto and it's quite explicit about a suggestion of ideas behind objects he writes the following maybe I'll just read a little bit of that enemy of education declamation wrong feelings objective description Symbolist poetry tries to dress the idea in a sensitive form which, however, would not be its sole purpose, but furthermore, that while serving to express the idea in itself would remain subjective. The idea in its turn should not be allowed to be seen deprived of the sumptuous lounge robes of extraneous analogies, because the, <laughs> because the essential character of symbolic art consists in never approaching the concentrated kernel of the idea itself. So in this art, the pictures of nature, the actions of human beings, all concrete phenomena, would not themselves know how to manifest themselves. These are presented as the sensitive appearance destined to represent their esoteric affinity with primordial ideas. All right, so <laughs> that's that's quite dense, I suppose, and you know perhaps symbolism has moved uh, way beyond this uh, by uh, 1918. That that text is from 1886, but um, I was really curious about this idea of these descriptions of the phenomenal world somehow representing something beyond themselves. I mean, are we are we intended to be reading? greater ideas outside of this pure luxuriation in the senses i'm really not sure that we are i think i would definitely agree with you yeah i would question whether this is really a symbolist text at all you know even though it says so on the book <laughs> uh, <laughs> um, <laughs> in some ways i think we have quite a rich enough experience reading the the text and letting the real world shine for its own sake given you know the peasants moribund circumstances what do you think about that are we, are we meant to be, be thinking beyond these objects it feels like there's a depth of experience and impression that is just like absolutely amazing and and i don't would you agree that it it felt to me like a very modern text despite as you said you know it really could be set at any time you know a hundred years before i guess it was it was written there's nothing that quite places it i don't think well actually no it, it talks about his son in america but even that there's there's not too much that places it but i think it finds a beauty and a, and a richness in in the everyday for what it's worth that it it kind of unearths a beauty within within the everyday that is there but is perhaps overlooked. I'm not sure that there is using that as yeah as a, as a symbol for for something more. The only thing that made me read it in slightly more allegorical terms doesn't come from symbolism at all. You know, I was wondering if we could think about everything that is described from Nan's perspective as a kind of abstraction of sorts. The whole time we have to remember that his immediate reality is that of his bed and his worries about the temperature mm. of the room, which side he's lying on and how comfortable he is. And uh, we could see these sort of visitations, you know, representative 
perspective of each sense as something like a recasting of a morality play but in very sensory terms do you, do you know that uh, medieval allegorical tradition rob yeah 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 yeah, yeah. like every man where uh, the sins and virtues are yeah. personified and i was kind of made to think of something like that and i think it's quite quite a fruitful line of inquiry because there are lots of mentions of religion throughout the book there are mentions of going to church and vespers and there's even a statue of the virgin mary sitting on the chest of drawers in the room you know the book abounds with these references of the practice of religion but they all have this very mundane or irreverent quality you mentioned drinking earlier i've got this passage here on page 45 and i think it's really interesting to see the alignment of sensory pleasure and religion here it says it goes like this and so sunday comes there are some who grab a drop of gin before high mass but you've never done that you waited until after high mass because you were in the priest's good books the others are from the other clique and they stayed at the back of the church, but you're at the front. You wait until the town clerk has left before leaving and then you go, don't you, to drink a gin in the font. No more than one at a time unless you have a worm in your stomach. This obviously is part of that cumulative comic effect of, of realizing that yeah he does he does like a bit of a drink but it also says to me that this final reckoning with the life that he's leaving behind is is not a purely moral one that the description of his life is not a description of a sinful life right but a, a life of uh sensual sensualist you know in the in both the philosophical sense of that term and then that very 19th century meaning that you you find being used to describe those dissolute characters in russian novels you know <laughs> so it's not to me about the good and the bad that he has done in his life but somehow essentializes his apprehension of the world his epistemological mm -hmm. engagement with the world from a very sort of empiricist perspective that becomes the thing beyond the objects somehow that's the closest i could get to a, a symbolist reading yeah this this kind of centralist reading is is definitely something that really i find rings true for me definitely i mean i was quite interested in how different senses are presented here and i was also there was something that may just be completely unimportant but i found it very interesting that in the structure sight and sound are presented as a single not chapter but a section broken into into sections yeah. yeah and then the others each have their own section and it might just be complete absolutely nothing mm. but i could find no reason for, for why that might be the case but i also i found it very interesting the way that the descriptions of each of these personifications of his senses reflected a certain kind of like hierarchy of how kind of very traditional aesthetics would see them so uh, sight is the first one we meet and she's a very young pure very clean girl but by the time we get to smell describes as this this personification as uh, filthy zulma from the edge of the wood <laughs> her clothes full of dirt that hung to her body two dry leaves and her dusty flaxen hair but despite this for me the the section on smell was by far the the most amazing and this this was the one that i was kind of moved to to read out loud because i think it's it's just beautiful and it's the point where the, this kind of becomes almost synthetic where the 
my senses start to to blend with each other um and so this is a very long way <laughs> of saying that it felt like perhaps the relationship with religion felt like it wasn't very hierarchical that i mean it's a bit too grounded i think to be blakian in a visionary sense but in a kind of sensory sense maybe there is something there and it and it feels like there's a the same thing has happened with this hierarchy of of the senses that it's kind of flipped on its head somehow or or just completely dismantled two things there really resonated with me because i do feel like maybe it's sort of in indicative of a general shift away from religious experience and and an attempt to find or define a new form of spiritual experience to move away from a moral understanding of a life lived and focus on you know this more tangible experience of living itself i certainly would agree with you um in those terms it takes away the necessity of moral hierarchy you know are you accepted into into the kingdom of heaven or not is no longer the question all that also this idea of something visionary is another thing that separates this this text from lots of symbolist writing you know you mentioned synesthesia you know the obvious thing that comes to mind for me is uh rumbo's systematic derangement of the senses you know this idea rob mm. and there's that poem vowels where each of the vowels is ascribed a different color and it struck me that Rombeau is is trying to enter a a sort of visionary state but for me the synesthesia or synesthetic aspects of this text uh, seem to be far more sort of circumstantial for a start and maybe you can correct me here Rob if I'm saying something sort of politically insensitive (laughs) Um, (laughs) but uh, the central character of this work is not uh, an intellectual he doesn't work with his mind right this is not to say that he's not intelligent but that his life is concerned with the tangible and not so much with the visionary and so it's interesting to me that the visions that he received never feel like intellectual exercises but very much tied to the real world and i think um the synesthetic descriptions are just just a way of i don't know bringing the real world closer somehow like there's this passage bertha was knitting by the doorway so that the needles clashed together they chatted very sweetly the sky whispered Bertha laughed so that it was like a glow. To me, this is just an attempt to communicate the warmth of that of that feeling rather than enter any kind of visionary state. Yeah, no, no, completely, absolutely, that this, this attempt to capture something in its reality inevitably begins to kind of ignore the boundaries of senses. I mean, there's a, I think there's a, a section, a passage where it even says the, the poor man has no riches but his warmth. And it is precisely that, that you know, these sensory experiences are all he has, but that they are perhaps equivalent to, to the, the riches of just man, whether that was intellectual riches or, or material riches. Yeah, I don't mean to say that, you know, the simple people cannot experience the visionary or something like that. No, uh, oh, no, no, no. Um, I, I thought you kind of meant the opposite that uh okay yeah 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 there was an absolute uh, a visionary element that was far more immediate i suppose yeah that's precisely what i meant i just (laughs) i thought i might not have been so clear with (laughs) 
Oh, how the poor suffer from the cold. Yes, when you're young, the cold of the frost or wind stirs your blood, so that you know the pleasure of throwing out your arms and legs, so that you start scintillating with a glow to the tips of your fingers and toes. The children warm themselves up by laughing and throwing snowballs, and when the young girls feel the snowflakes that slowly come and settle on their cheeks, or even the merciless needles of the icicles, they giggle because they are like chilly but hot kisses. But if they lie in bed and don't have a good blanket, they shiver with the cold. The children cry with the cold, and it is only the cowherds and their mates in the hard winter nights that are warm enough to dream of love. For the poor man has no riches but his warmth. It is a blessing of the married state that sleeping together you are warm, and nothing is sadder than the cold of widowers. But when you are warm you have courage. You are nice and warm now, aren't you now? Then you can think of your young days when you could work up a sweat playing in the farmyard, or went with the harvesters, and as you harvested, you felt deep in your body, hotter than the sun itself. The end, just that, that he, you know, having undergone all this and this, this, you know, really beautiful text, actually at the end he's still saying, but I'm still actually not happy. <laughs> and then comes back to sort of re re meets his wife and this this bit right at the very end where he says you know he's not happy and then he kind of re meets his wife or the soul of his wife this seems to be soothing his worries in a more fundamental way than the sensory memories which perhaps allowed him to escape from them but not fully dismiss them uh, right at the very end when he says you know um, but he doesn't know what to say what to say to her and he says uh, he waited a little longer but then began smiling craftily now he knew what he had to say he knew oh he knew and that's where he dies and and we're left with this and it's i don't know if it's even worth beginning to think because maybe the beauty of that is in the not knowing and almost certainly that is that is the case but i was i was just very interested to to hear what you thought of that i mean i think it's uh it's plain isn't it I, I took it to mean an expression of love it's purely actually just the word craftily it just suddenly opened up in a like quite interestingly poetic way this whole vista of possibilities of what he might say that there's um you know the crafty that he's you know there's perhaps something manipulative or it could be like a memory or um was a, an unexpected word but yeah no I mean I certainly I've got this written down in my notes exactly that is is this last section love and is this does that mean that here we can consider love as one of the senses and you know everything that that comes with well I, I took that craftily to be a kind of playful sweetness there rather than mm. you know trying to hide something necessarily it's almost like he's sort of excited in this very sweet way that she's mm. now joining him in bed um just you know the description before that and he says and he saw that vanna was smiling peacefully at him one by one she slowly took her clothes off which she folded neatly and put on the chair with his cap she was going to come to bed too he saw and now he was certain that henceforth she would be with him with him forever you know and then it goes into this prayer but it it seemed like the sweetness of affection really because she has been the missing character throughout most of the book this struck me as a moment of realization what was what was missing 
my reading of craftily was that if if this love which he suddenly realized that absolutely is is the thing that's missing and the thing that doesn't allow him to to die peacefully is embody or like embedded in in this sensory experience then love broadens to include lust and and the kind of like physical side of things as well and that that was kind of like the the crafty play yeah absolutely playful you know we've got to remember it's a translation as well yeah well that's the other yeah quite keen to find out what that word is in in dutch this dutch version i've got has a sort of glossary at the back that might be suggestive that there are sort of dialect words in here. It it does refer here to words in West Flemish that aren't used in uh, Dutch okay. and so on. But hold on. Okay, this actually doesn't end the way... <laughs> this doesn't end the way that the uh, <laughs> the translation does, because this, this version that I've got, I think this might be the abridged one for um, uh, radio. But if not, perhaps we can end on a cliffhanger and all our avid listeners we can have a little section at the beginning of the next one where we say, you know, we've, we've looked it up and... Um, Here is the payoff. <laughs> you know, people, people are going to be on the edge of their seats for a week. <laughs> a week? Well, my dad one a week. <laughs> God, we, we wish, man. Edge of their seats for sort of like a, a month and a bit. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Uh, with each book we like to award a shared rating and we give it for the strangeness of the book and uh, basically how much we liked it too um, so how would you uh, award this book Rob what shared rating would you give it I think like a like a seven at least a seven seven or eight I don't know the only thing that let it down for me is that I was really really excited about the section on taste and um, I felt it wasn't quite as strong. But for the section on, on smell alone, it was just, yeah, right up there, definitely. What about you? Uh, yeah, seven is a very respectable score. I'm going to give this one eight shirts because of uh, just how long I've waited to read it in full. <laughs> um, it's been a book that's sort of hovered at the back of my mind for quite a long time now, and so it's just such a joy to be able to finally get to grips with it, and it's been really nice discussing it too, so... Thanks for joining me, Rob. We hope you've enjoyed this episode of Sherd's Podcast. If you have any questions or comments about our conversation, please write to us at sherdspodcast at gmail.com. You can also follow us on Instagram or Twitter. And if you like the show, please leave us a review on iTunes. Sherd's Podcast will also be making a second appearance this week when we release a special episode for Halloween. Subscribe in order not to miss it. Thank you for listening, and we'll see you next time. Shirt's podcast is part of the Holdfast Network. Go to holdfastnetwork.com for more programs you may enjoy.